So let me open for the word of prayer, and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your sovereignty, Lord. Even the divine interruptions that somehow I was not paying attention, and Lord, I thank you for your patience and mercy, and I pray for patience and mercy for all of us as we're in a different environment that's not particularly comfortable as far as sitting on a little kid lunch tables, but Lord, even in that, you know what you're doing. So I just pray that you'll help us to be able to focus in the limited time we have this morning to talk from your word. I pray that your word will be encouraging, it'll be convicting, and that you'll help us, Lord, to walk in obedience to you in relation to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to remember uh, the persecuted church, Lord. I think of our brothers in Benin, Victor, and Julian, who um, who are still enduring the suffering uh, caused by the attack on Victor. And Lord, we pray for protection for our brothers and sisters around the world, wherever they are, as they endure hardship. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have had today to celebrate your faithfulness with the new addition to our church. Lord, for some, it might not seem like much, but we know how much we needed additional space for fellowship and for building up the body of Christ. And we just thank you, Lord, that the that everything was brought to completion. And so now I pray for us as we turn to your word. And again, I pray that you will use it to conform us to the image of Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to continue... The message that I started last week, I told you I wasn't sure if I was going to to move on to Second Peter, the next step, and if I had thought about things, uh, my life is continually go through my head what Jesus said, each day has enough troubles of its own. That seems to be my life for a long time, and um, I wasn't thinking ahead, but this was a special weekend for our family, and my sister Lori, who's here from California, came in, and we started a new tradition a couple years ago that our family celebrates Thanksgiving early. So we celebrated Thanksgiving yesterday. So we all met at my sister Pam's house, who did a great job playing the piano on the the choir piece this morning. But it was a I would have if I'd have thought about that, I would have known I needed to just finish this message because we were cooking and doing all those kind of things this weekend. But it was a great blessing for our family. So if you were here last week, you know that I was doing a message on Second John. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. And I'm going to reread the section, and we covered a couple of points on this, and I'm going to quickly go through those and then get to the material for today. But follow along, if you will. I read from the New American Standard, but it's Second John, all, all the way in the back of the Bible, um, a little bit before Revelation. Chapter 1 is the only chapter, so it's verses 1 to 6. Elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son of the Father in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. And as I began covering this last week, I, I mentioned that I had actually preached this back in 2008. Um, but it really is focusing, the letter is focusing on truth. Truth from error. It's one of the shortest books 
but throughout the New Testament era, there were false teachers that were coming into the churches, and it was the danger was perpetually that true believers would fall away following false doctrine, or that unbelievers would be kept from the truth because they followed false teachers rather than following those who were proclaiming the true gospel. And so everything about this book is really dealing with pointing to truth. And so when I broke down the outline, and I explained this a little bit more last week, I just have four marks of genuine faith. Not a complicated outline, but in a world that is filled with error today, no less than it was 2,000 years ago, if anything, the access to error is greater than ever. Because it comes through the internet, it comes through podcasts, it comes through the radio, and on and on it goes. It comes through Facebook and Instagram, Twitter. We need more than ever within the church to distinguish truth from error. Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. If we saw Satan, he wouldn't have a pitchfork and horns. He would probably be wearing a nicer suit than me. And he would speak much more eloquently than I can speak. And if we weren't careful, we would be drawn instantly to his lies because he's very good. I've said over and over, I've used this statement, this truth. Many times I'm baffled that the holy angels who are in the presence of God, I mean, we hear about God, but we're not in heaven. Satan was so persuasive that a third of the holy angels followed him instead of the glory of God who was right in their face. So, all of that, we have to be careful. And so these marks that John gives us are things we can use to evaluate our own lives, but also those around us. So, quickly, I'll go through the first two. We covered the first mark of genuine faith, you love the elect. You love the elect. And that was just from the first verse and the second verse. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Again, I won't teach all of this, but in all likelihood, despite some disagreement amongst commentators, I tend to believe that this letter was written to an actual woman, perhaps someone who hosted a house church. She certainly wasn't a pastor, but she perhaps hosted one of the house churches in her home, and it was written to her and and her believing adult children. At least some of her children were in the faith. And so he was writing a personal letter to someone who would be able to disseminate it to the broader congregation. And his ultimate point, the ultimate point that I get is how he loved her in the truth. He loved her family. And it's not only him, but also all who know the truth. In other words, a mark of true belief is a love for those whom God has chosen. Now it's critical, and I will highlight it even more later, he talks about loving in truth. This isn't just some feeling that we can muster up because somebody happens to, maybe the lady was a good cook and had a nice home. That, that's not that kind of love. This is a love in the truth. In other words, she knew the truth, she was in the faith, and it's that type of love. And that love is shared by all who know the truth, meaning every other believer. It's not based on common interests. It's not based on similar income. It's not based on similar political views. It's not based on geography. It's based on the fact that God loves sinners, and you were one. And if God loved that sinner, then you love them too. 
The second point, and again, I'm just trying to do a brief overview, is that you understand the gospel. You understand the gospel. This is a very personal letter. And even though these are simple greetings, and it's a short letter, and these are just a few words, they're very important words. In verse 3, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Again, I won't go into it like I did last week, but grace is really God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but God gives it to us anyway because He loves us. Mercy is what we need because because of our sins, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. And peace is what we have with God when we come to faith. So really, even though these are short words, this is really a summation of the picture of the gospel of what happens to sinners when they're made right with God because of Jesus Christ. As simple as that may say, and particularly at Lakeside, we're so steeped in the truth that it can almost become second nature and we can almost flip over those words in our minds and not even think about them. But churches are filled with people preaching something other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're preaching something other than you need to repent and believe. They're preaching all kinds of things that are very popular, that we would want to hear it. Perhaps it'll make us better in our career, so we think. Perhaps it's just because we're lonely and it's a good place with a lot of people. Perhaps that church has donuts every week and not just once every few years. (laughs) But the reality is, it's the gospel that matters. If a church isn't preaching the gospel, then a church isn't truly experiencing the love of Christ. So that's a quick summation of where I was last week. Four marks of genuine faith. You love the elect, you understand the gospel, and again, you can go online if you didn't hear that, and you can hear the fullness of last week. But let's move on to our third point. The third point is this. The third mark of genuine faith is you rejoice when others are faithful. You rejoice when others are faithful. And I'm going to explain this a little bit more because it's more important, I think, than we realize. Verse 4. The Apostle John said this, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Again, this is a personal letter, and I treat this as a letter that was written to an actual individual, not just to a church personified as the lady. And reading through it, I think the best understanding is that Of the children of this woman that the Apostle John knew, he knew they were saved and he knew they were walking in the truth, meaning they were walking in obedience to the Scripture. I'm not sure that it means that she had some adult children that weren't saved. I think it's more of a reflection that he had heard and he knew of her and some of her children were walking in truth. Just as we receive commandment to do from the Father... He had a deep joy, very glad. It's overflowing, it's rejoicing. He was truly ecstatic when he heard about their obedience. We need to think carefully and evaluate our hearts in terms of other people's obedience. He did not have the attitude that said, well, that's what they're supposed to do anyway. Why am I going to pat them on the back? No, he was rejoicing because he knew in a time when error was invading 
the church, some were clinging to the truth and they weren't just hearing the truth, they were doing the truth. That's what's so critical. The Bible repeatedly refers to a godly life using the imagery of walking in a certain way. And it really just means you're following the pattern, you're being obedient. Going back into the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 8.6, we read, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. Psalm 119.33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. I won't read it in its entirety, but I'll give you the scripture reference. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 17 to 20. I'll read verse 19. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. It's really talking about regeneration. Verse 20. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. And in the New Testament, of course, Paul makes it clear. In Ephesians chapter 4, I think I have a verse reference wrong, but it's probably verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, though there are countless scriptural references like this, the Apostle John was overjoyed. Because the people that he was writing to were doing this very thing. They were walking in the commandments. They were delighting themselves in the commandments. They were walking in the statues in obedience. Yes, it's what they were supposed to be doing, but he knew that it was still something praiseworthy. They weren't being swayed or enticed by error. The habitual pattern of their life, he's not saying they were perfect, but the habitual pattern of their life was to keep coming back to the truth. If you've been a believer longer than one day, you understand that you have your eyes on Jesus, and then all of a sudden you look and you step off the path. Lord, forgive me. You come back. Or you're going and suddenly a habitual sin that you thought was in your past, that you were over, like a dog returning to his vomit, all of a sudden you go, what just happened, Lord? But First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we come back to the path. That's what he's talking about, is people who are continually repenting, continually trying to walk in obedience. They may have the struggle that the Apostle Paul talked about in Romans 7, where some days... I do the very thing I don't want to do and the thing that I want to do I don't do. But it's the hard attitude, it's the characteristic nature of them that even when they fall short, their desire is to get back on the path. That's what the Apostle John is rejoicing over. They received the commandment to do this from the Father and they were trying, walking by the Spirit, to do it as the course of their life. They were believing and they were loving just as they were commanded. 1 John 3.23 really I think is speaking of the broader aspect of what John's talking about here. Verse 23. This is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as He commanded us. These saints were doing that. The Apostle John 
was rejoicing. And so the question for us is when we see other believers walking in obedience, are we rejoicing like that? It's a mark of the elect. It's a mark of those who are genuinely saved. Or are we jealous saying, well, but they've got every advantage. Well, yeah, it's easy for them. They don't have my financial difficulties. Well, yeah, he loves his wife, but he doesn't have my wife. Or, well, she can submit to her husband, but look at him compared to mine. No, that's, that's petty jealousy. That's excuses. That's not walking in obedience. That's just living like an American and complaining about everybody else. That's not the mark of a believer. We shouldn't be jealous of other people, although, again, at times our flesh does us in and we repent. But we should rejoice when other people are walking well. It was exciting to hear Pastor Steve reading the names of people who worked to do well to have this new facility done. Are there other names? There are probably a lot of other names. We forget things at times, but when you hear that, is the idea, praise the Lord for those people, or how come I didn't get my credit? How come I'm not being announced? I, you should have seen me with those kindergartners last week. They were outrageous, and they were doing, and why didn't the pastor thank me? No, we should be rejoicing. We should be thrilled when others are walking in obedience. They should be our example. If we're walking well, then we should be thrilled that they're following in our footsteps. And if we're not walking well, we should be thankful that the Lord brought into our lives people whose example we can emulate. Now, I was just talking for quite a while and not looking at my notes, so I have no idea where I am. Because none of that was in my notes. So... so. Anyway, the Lord is very gracious. And again, that's the pattern of the New Testament. Romans 16, 19. Apostle Paul said, For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. He was excited. Colossians 2, 5. Again, the Apostle Paul. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Similar things are in Acts 11, Acts 15, 3 John. Here's the point. It's a mark of genuine faith when you can be excited that other believers are doing well. Other believers are walking in obedience and we don't resent it. We're not frustrated by it, but we rejoice and we praise God for it. That brings us to the last mark of genuine faith. And this is the toe-stepper. Four marks. You love the elect. You understand the gospel. You rejoice when others are faithful. And number four, you obey God's commands. You obey God's commands. It's interesting because John had just said we're rejoicing because I see this. I'm excited. But kind of like the Apostle Paul who even when people were doing well, he said excel still more. John goes on to reiterate what's required. Verse 5. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. He's transitioning. He's asking them to do something. It's actually because he's an apostle. He's telling them to do something. But no doubt this is a personal friend and it's an intimate letter. But he's transitioning into the meat of what he has to say. The greeting is over. He knows they're doing well. He's very thankful for that. But now he wants to tell them, continue and do more. 
he wants this chosen lady and all who were with her to obey God's commandment and it's a repetition of something they already know. It's amazing, the longer you read the Bible, how many times God repeats Himself. He says the same thing over and over. And you look at all these different writers and they're saying the same different things. Why? Because I think because we're sinners and we're hard-headed and we're stubborn. But he's making it clear. Look, I'm not asking you something new. I'm not pulling something out of left field that you've never heard. I'm asking you to do what you already know you're supposed to do. Not as though I were writing to you a new commandment. This is something that is instinctive for them. In fact, he says, this is what we've had from the beginning. In other words, this is your basics of Christianity. In the very beginning, in the foundation of your salvation, this is what you were told and it never changes. And the commandment is very simple, that we love one another. It's interesting because the New Testament has countless one another's. That's what they're often referred to. Somewhere in my computer directory, I have a list of them. There's a long list. Pray for one another and care for one another and on and on it goes. But love one another is foundational because as Jesus made it clear, this is found the foundational commandment for us. It's the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in a Christian context, Jesus said this in John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, this isn't something that John's making up. He's just repeating a commandment that he heard from Jesus. I think about that sometimes. John was there when Jesus said this. And now, later, he's just writing it again. I got it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Here, here it is. You know it. It's nothing new. This is what we have to do. And it's supposed to be evangelistic. Now, the nature of sin is such that Christians don't get along with Christians all over the world. It's not a uniquely American phenomenon. But despite the fact that I've traveled to a lot of places, I've been around Americans more than anybody else. And it's interesting, as you go into this election season, and I don't talk politics, I don't have any reason to, I voted and looked online that my ballot was counted, that's good enough. But my point is this, quite often we're known for anything but love. Now, when I say that, it's not so much lakeside, it's the fact that we're lumped in with everybody else in America. But what happens is Christians are well known for their stance on a lot of different things. We need to be well known for the fact that we love each other unconditionally over and over. And I think anybody that spends any length of time at Lakeside will see that. Our church rallies around one another. For, for example, Doreen Sloan came up to me and perhaps some of you already knew this, Brian's in the hospital again. Our church has poured out love for them and will continue to pour out love for them. That's the body of Christ. That's walking in obedience. That's showing the world that we love as Christ loved us. Again, don't misunderstand me. Of course, we can be involved in our American political system. Of course, Christians can run for office. I wish more genuine believers were elected to office. But the point is, we should be focused more on loving each other than anything else. Because it's evangelistic. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. Not by our vocal 
stance on a thousand different issues, but all men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. It's evangelistic. We want to impact the world for Jesus Christ more than anything else. I know you do. Do we want better outcomes in the elections? Of course we do. I've got to be careful because my sister's here and she lives in California, but I could always tell you who was going to win the election in California. It's, it's whoever I didn't vote for. <laughs> it, it was a given. Um, but the point is this. Our commitment to walk in the truth shouldn't matter what happens next Tuesday. Maybe we'll be happy, maybe we'll be sad, but it doesn't matter when it comes to how we live with one another. We walk in obedience. We walk in love. It's interesting. When I originally studied this, I came across a thought, and it's not my thought. I'm trying to paraphrase a thought of someone else, and I don't even remember who the thought was from, or else I would give them credit. Just trying to be clear. This isn't me thinking this up. Someone else planted the idea in my mind from my original studies of this. But they said there's a lot of Christian duties that are easy to counterfeit. You can counterfeit a lot of works. Look at the New Testament. what the Pharisees did. They could tithe. They could do all the things. They could pray. They could do the shows. You can counterfeit piety. Again, just show up at church. That puts you in a, a different group. Hold the applause, though. Because as they said, it's hard to counterfeit love for other Christians because other Christians are not easy to love. We can look in the mirror. We're a mess. We have quirks. We have annoying habits. We're not always thoughtful. Despite me saying we should love for one another, sometimes we just miss it. But if you see somebody that can love the body of Christ despite all the shortcomings, despite the disappointments, despite people letting you down, you know something's happened in their heart. John's phraseology makes clear that really this is a reciprocal duty. We owe a duty of love and we're entitled to a duty of others to love us. Now, I don't ever like to go into that even though it's the way the language is because I still remember from years ago when a class that Debbie and I were in, I wasn't a pastor, we were just a young couple trying to find our way with new kids and everything, and we did a lesson on what your spouse should do, and it created so much dissension because everybody was bitter because they weren't doing it. <laughs> so so I, I've always had that in my mind, to be careful, say you're owed something. But the reality is, within the body of Christ, you are owed a duty of love. I would encourage you to focus on loving others, but as you love others, over time, you should receive some love. If you don't, talk to me. I'll give a lecture and I'll put your picture up and we'll uh, work <laughs> I'm being facetious, of course. But now, granted, part of the way you receive that love is to be active in the body of Christ. I'm always encouraged. So many of you have been so faithful for so long in the class. And, of course, at Lakeside, people come and go and they move to other classes. That's fine. As long as they're involved, I'm excited. Why? Because they're fellowshipping. They're going to experience love for one another. If somebody only comes in and sits in the back row... They might get a handshake, but if they immediately get out the door, guess what? There's no chance they're going to receive love. There's no chance they can give love other than, again, a handshake. So, it's critical for us that we continually love one another. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
it's so crucial. Love and obedience, it all goes together. Yeah, Jesus loved, but he also was obedient. For example, in John 14, 31, he said, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So the reality is, love and obedience go together. That's how John phrases it in verse 6. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. In other words, loving one another isn't just an emotion. It's living out all the truths of Scripture in each other's lives. So that each of us gets the benefit of the best of the rest of us, motivated by the Holy Spirit to serve. And it should not be a burden to walk in the Lord's commandments. It's hard, but what I'm talking about is not the difficulty of obeying, it's the wanting to. You should want to obey the Lord. You may fall short, but you should want to walk according to His commandments. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And while Jesus' teaching is always the pinnacle, Jesus says that just live your life based on that, He wasn't treading new ground Himself. Going back to the book of Exodus... In the giving of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You'll find the same truth, for time's sake I won't read it, in Deuteronomy 7.9. You'll find something similar in Joshua 22, verse 5. Love is marked by obedience. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. We're commanded to love, And the evidence that we're obeying the command to love one another is that we're living out the truths of Scripture that are there. I don't have it in my notes, but in the book of Hebrews, when it's admonishing believers, don't forsake the gathering together with other believers as is the habit of some. Because we're there to build one another up and to care for one another. That's what love is. It's not just an emotion. And it's critical... Because it's so contrary to our modern ethic. But obedience and love are not competing interests. So many times, I can't even count it. I've read this. I've heard this in person. Perhaps you've heard it as well. The scripture says, no. And somebody else says, yes. Well, what what wins? Scripture. But what happens over and over is somebody will say, well, you condemned them for what they were doing. No, I didn't. The Scriptures condemned what they're doing. Well, you're not very loving. That's a false love. That's not true love. True love is always based on what God has said because God is the author and source and fountain of love. There are countless churches that will not preach on controversial topics because we don't want to offend anyone. If we preach on that, people wouldn't show up. 
I can tell you, if the people won't show up because they're offended by the Word of God, you don't need them in your midst anyway. They need evangelism. And I'm not saying we do a crash course of shoving people out of the doors of the church. The point is, you can't separate love from obedience to God's Word. If you love someone, and yet you will not talk to them about the truths of God's Word, you're holding back love. It matters very much that love always be grounded in the truth. And truth isn't how somebody feels or their subjective determination of what they want to be reality. Truth is always grounded in the objective Word of God. That's why we need people like Pastor Steve. Because all he does is open up the Bible and tell you this is what God says. That's true preaching. Certainly there's exhortation and there's love, but if the people don't know the Word of God, they will perish, they'll starve. And America is littered with churches where people are starving, and quite often they don't know it because they do have donuts. They do have something like that, but it's a counterfeit. It's a sugar high. So let me encourage you. It's a critical aspect of genuine faith that at the very least you have a hard attitude of obedience to God's commands. Again, you'll fall short, but you'll repent and turn to Christ. So that's just a short summary. But it's a good reminder of what we should look for in genuine faith. So, I'm thankful for Lakeside. I'm thankful that I see these characteristics in this Sunday school class. I'm thankful that I see these characteristics in the church. And I pray for each one of us that we will strive more and more to live out our faith in a way that's visible, not in showy pretension like the Pharisees, but in humble obedience to the Lord whom we love. Please let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, it is a great day when we're gathered together as your people. Lord, we have had good fellowship today. We've praised you. We've had wonderful times singing together, and we've heard great truths from your word from Pastor Steve. Lord, I thank you for what you've done at Lakeside, what you continue to do. I thank you for the new members who are joining our church. Lord, I just pray that you will continue to help each one of us strive for the obedience that characterizes your elect. Lord, I pray that you'll help us strive individually to walk in obedience to the truth. And I pray that you'll help us as the body of Christ at Lakeside to love one another in such a way that the entire community around us would look at us and say, those are Jesus' disciples. I can tell because they love one another. And we'll give you the glory for everything. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.